This podcast is a production of the Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska, a place where real people meet a real God to live in a real world. For more information, visit our website at www.communitycovenant.net. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, and that there are neither angels nor spirits. But the Pharisees believe all these things. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Thank you, Ralph. In uh, April of 2005, uh, I was serving on staff at a church in Fair Oaks, California, and had uh, received a call uh, to pastor a covenant church in Windsor, California, which uh, is in the North Bay, about 70 miles north of San Francisco. And I remember the Sunday that uh, I had announced to the congregation that Lori and I had accepted a call to this church in Windsor and that we would be leaving in May. And uh, that was on a Sunday. Well, the next day, Monday, I was in my office at church, and the phone rang. I picked it up, and it was a lady who, it just happened that that had been her very first Sunday in church. And where had she moved from? Windsor, California. And she said, Pastor, you don't know me. Yesterday was my very first Sunday at church. But I heard that you had received a call to move to Windsor, California to pastor in a covenant church there. And I said, well, yes. Yes, I have. And I'll never forget what she said. Her next words were, do you know what you're getting yourself into? <laughs> oh, gee, I should have had this conversation before I accepted the call. And I said, well, I, I think so. She said, no, 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 no. <clears throat> Do you really know what you are getting yourself into? I said, well, maybe you know more than I do. Would you care to share with me? And she went on to share a story that would rival Frank Peretti's best novel. You might recall Peretti's novels uh, that came out in the 80s, and it, and it talked about the, the whole topic of spiritual warfare on a church, on a pastor, on a community. And she began to share about the intensity of spiritual warfare in the North Bay of California. 
how difficult ministry was there and how pastor after pastor in the community had literally been chewed up and spit out. Uh, how churches were struggling, uh, how there was just difficulty for the cause of Christ and the gospel. And she began to tell me story after story after story. Finally, I said, stop, enough. I've heard enough. Uh, and she said, well, I just want you to know that I'll be praying for you. And uh, that was kind of an unsettling phone call. And uh, about a month later, we moved and we began our pastorate there. And sure enough, I began to meet people in the community and pastors. And I began to hear stories. And I say, oh, I'm thinking to myself, you're the one that she was talking about her. That's the church she was talking about her. And all the pieces of the puzzle began to fit together. And uh, I have to tell you that Lori and I served in the church there uh, for about uh, eight and a half years. And it was the most difficult eight and a half years of ministry uh, that we had ever experienced in over 31 years of pastoral ministry. It was difficult. Everything that she said was true and then some. Okay? But we believe that hard is never a reason to give up. Because sometimes the Lord calls us to difficult and to hard places. And... Uh, I remember in the, in the midst of all of it, there was a time that was incredibly difficult. Uh, there was immense pressure. Uh, we were struggling. And uh, I was praying and just uh, asking God, God, you know, could you work in this situation? Could you, could you work in our lives? Lord, could you work in this community? I mean, it was hard, hard soil. And uh, I remember... Uh, praying, and in my mind as I was praying, there was a question that came to my mind. And here was the question. It was, Todd, if this is as good as it gets, is it good enough? Right? I'm praying that things are going to get better. And in my mind, the question that comes up, I believe it was prompted by the Holy Spirit, was Todd, if this is good as it gets, is it going to be good enough for you? After all, what is it you thought that you had signed up for? Right? And uh, I knew right then what the right answer was, but I have to share it with you. In all honesty, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't say, oh yes, Lord, if this is good as it gets, this is good enough for me. This difficult, hard place... Uh, where there seems to be very little light, very little progress in ministry, uh, where the soil of people's hearts are hard, uh, where there's resistance and hostility in some cases to the gospel. Yes, if this is as good as it gets, it's good enough for me, right? Um, I couldn't say it. I couldn't say it. And uh, I remember over the course of several months, and then beyond several months, um, to a couple of years, that question still was in my head. If this is as good as it gets, is it good enough for you? And uh, <clears throat> I wrestled with that. But I remember when the day came when 
in my heart, I could honestly say, yes, Lord, if this is as good as it gets, it's good enough for me. Right? Now, I said that in all honesty, and it was wonderful to be able to say that. It, it really, um, it was significant and that it really was a statement that I had surrendered kind of my will, my plan for what I thought that ministry was going to be like and was willing to accept the place where God had, had called us and uh, really said, yeah, okay, Lord, I give up, I surrender. If this is as good as it gets, this is good enough for me. And, uh, you know, what the expectation was. When you say that, that things are going to get better, right? Well, when I finally got to the place where I could say, if this is as good as it gets, it's good enough for me, things got worse, right? And uh, it was a very, very difficult time. This morning, as we read in the Scripture, we're looking at the Apostle Paul. You might recall, as we've gone through the book of Acts, in Acts 20, 24, in the verses that precede it, uh, Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders, and he says that he wants to go on to Jerusalem. It's his farewell address to them. And... Uh, Many of them are not wanting him to go because they know what awaits him there. In fact, he tells them, I don't know what awaits me there, only that the Holy Spirit has told me that there is much pain and heartache and difficulty. That's what awaits me there. But I'm going to go anyway. Okay? So the Holy Spirit had told him what he might expect. But as we read in our passage today in Acts 23... He is living out what the Holy Spirit had told him to expect. He makes his way to Jerusalem. Uh, he proclaims the gospel. And there are those Jewish people who are adverse to what he is saying. Uh, they're adverse to the news that Gentiles are, are being converted to faith in Jesus Christ. They see it as a threat to Judaism, to their faith, to their beliefs. And literally a riot breaks out. So much so that the Roman commander of the guard there in Jerusalem, he seizes Paul. And he wants to find out what is the cause of this uproar. What is it that this man has done that's created this unrest? And do you know that wherever the gospel is present, wherever God's people are living for Jesus, wherever they are proclaiming the gospel, the word of God in word and deed, you know that it causes unrest. Do you know that it stirs the hearts of men and women? Do you know that it, it threatens the status quo? And that's exactly what's going on here in Jerusalem. And so Paul is seized and the Roman commander, uh, he is going to now flog him to try to get the truth out of him. But then Paul says, do you know that I'm a Roman citizen? And the commander says, what? Because it was against Roman law to punish a Roman citizen for something that they had not rightfully been tried and convicted of. Okay, and that was a serious offense. And so he stops the flogging. But instead, what he does is he, he wants to call in the, the Jewish leaders of the, they're called the Sanhedrin, and they really are the, the high court of the nation. And they're made up of the high priest and, 
And they're made up of the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the collective spiritual leaders of, of the nation. And it's kind of an impromptu, uh, informal gathering of this group. And the commander is wanting Paul to explain. And he's wanting to hear from this court what it is that, that he's doing that's causing such an uproar. And that's where we find ourselves in our passage today. And of course, as he does that, he basically says, I'm on trial for my belief and for speaking about the resurrection. Now, it's interesting because of the the two parties there, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees believed in a a doctrine of resurrection. Uh, They believed in spirits and angels and the afterlife. Uh, The Sadducees did not. The Sadducees were like the... the, um, secular religionists of their time, okay? They held a lot of political power. Uh, they were well-connected with, with Rome and the Roman leadership. In fact, you might recall, uh, it was the Sadducees who really spearheaded um, Christ's arrest and, and what happened um, to Jesus, okay? And involved Rome and Pilate in, in all of, of the events leading up to, to Jesus' crucifixion. And so, when Paul states this, that I'm here because of my belief in, in teaching of the resurrection, that causes an uproar between the two parties, the two factions. The Pharisees who believe in the resurrection, right, in general as a whole, okay, as a, as a, as a doctrine of their belief. Of course, Paul being a Pharisee himself, believing in that, but more specifically, the demonstration of that, in the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the Sadducees, who what? They don't believe that. And so now the focus is off of Paul, and you, you get these two groups. They're, they're fighting with each other, and, and it gets so bad, okay, that fearing that Paul would literally be ripped to pieces, what happens? The Roman commander separates Paul to try to save him. And as we look in chapter 23 and verse 11, in the midst of all of this, we see these words. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, you must also testify in Rome. And it was at that point, that point when, when Paul could have doubted, right, that God was with him. He could have doubted that, that the outcome of all that was going on in, in Jerusalem would not result in his ability to go on to Rome, but, but his death right there in Jerusalem. When he would have questioned whether or not he would have been able to fulfill his aspiration and his desire to, to take the gospel to Rome, the, the capital of the empire. Jesus comes in that moment, in that moment where there could be doubt or despair or anxiety, and he's present. And he assures Paul that you're going to complete the mission. It's going to happen. Don't worry. I'm here. Okay? It's good stuff. Really, really good stuff. You know, 
as we have been on the vitality pathways at church, that is, as we've been talking about what it means to pursue Christ and his priorities in the world, we think of the example of the Apostle Paul or Peter or John or the others that we've become acquainted with in the book of Acts. And we're forced to ask ourselves this question. When planning the course of our lives, are we open to God's itinerary? Do we embrace or do we resist holy detours? It's a good question, isn't it? One of the things that is very apparent to me, and I hope to you as we've gone through our study in the book of Acts, that those first followers of Jesus were willing to embrace holy detours. They were willing to set their own plans for their own life aside in favor of seeking God and and His itinerary, His plan. But what enabled them to do that? Well, of course, we know it was the Holy Spirit. But I think there were some core or, or central beliefs that they maintained. I think that Paul maintains that allows us to, to answer the question when planning the course of our lives, are we open to God's itinerary and, and can we or uh, embrace or resist holy detours? There are three things here that I think will help us live into God's itinerary. Number one, it's the knowledge that God created us purposefully so that we can live purposeful lives. Do you know that? That God created you and me with great intentionality. He created us purposefully that we might live purposeful lives. Now, I would contend that there is no greater purpose that you or I could live for than to be a part of God's grand plan of redemption in the world. Do you know that? And that He has created us purposefully that we might be participants, that we might be co-laborers with Jesus Christ in God's sovereign plan of salvation. Now, what greater purpose could we have than that? Rick Warren, in his book, The Purpose Driven Life, says these words. You'll see them on the screen. He said, you were made by God and for God. Until you understand that, life will never make sense. You know why people are running around in the world and they're living life trying to find a purpose, they're seeking fulfillment, but they come up empty over and over and over and over again because they don't get this. They don't realize this. They don't know that we were created by God for God. He created us purposely that we might have purposeful lives. I believe Paul knew that. I know Peter knew that. John knew that. All the first followers of Jesus that we've read about in the book of Acts understood that. David writes in Psalm 139, verses 13 through 14, these words. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Not only were we created by God and for God, not only did He create us purposely that we might live purposeful lives, that we might be co-laborers with Christ, that we might participate fully in His plan of redemption. Not only that, but think about this. That you and I were fearfully and wonderfully 
made. That God was very intentional as He knit us together in our mother's womb. That you and I are not an accident. You know, I have to confess to you, I spent a great deal early on in life wishing I was someone other than who I was. I looked at people around me. I looked at their lives. I looked at their accomplishments. I looked at the things that they were doing. I looked at the things they were achieving. I looked at the things they were possessing. I said, why can't I be more like them? Right? And I began to compare myself. And the more I tried to compare myself to other people, the less I understood the reality of my own value as a person that God created intentionally, purposefully, because He intended I have a purposeful life, being the person He created me to be, not someone else. And expectation kills potential. Expectation, what? The expectation that we be like somebody else, comparison kills our spirit and it numbs us to the to the purpose which God created us because we're constantly comparing comparing or expecting somehow that we're going to be like somebody else and not ourselves the person God created us to be but we are fearfully and wonderfully made now, I love this Ephesians 2:10 Paul writes these words for we are God's handiwork Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do them. Do you know that? That you were created purposefully, that you might have a purposeful life, that you were fearfully and wonderfully made, that God has a, a plan and an intention for you, that you might participate fully in, in His plan of redemption. Not only that, that you might be a recipient, but you might be a co-labor with Christ in bringing that message of the gospel to the world. And you and I and the church, right, are God's handiwork. Created in Jesus Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So part of the question is, when planning the course of our lives, are we open to God's itinerary? Do we embrace or resist holy detours in our life? Part of the answer to that question is, do we recognize that God prepared, what? Good works in advance. That we might do them and live into them. And that there are people and places that God intends for us to go to as a part of that sovereign plan of, of redemption, that He created you for that. Wherever you are, wherever He places you, whatever your place is in life, that you have meaning and value and purpose, that, that God's desire is that you participate fully with Christ in the work of God's plan of redemption. It's good news, isn't it? I mean, if you ever question whether you had a reason to get up in the morning, think about this. That God created you and He planned for you to be involved in His sovereign plan of redemption. To be a co-laborer with Jesus Christ and bringing the good news of the gospel into the world. I believe that these first followers of Jesus understood this. And I believe it's the understanding of this that allowed the Apostle Paul to say, Lord, if this is as good as it gets... 
It's good enough for me. And when it got worse, he could still say the same thing. Now, the second thing is, the true fulfillment is found when we surrender our plans in favor of God's agenda. Proverbs 16, 3 and 9 says this. Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and He will establish your plans. In their hearts, humans plan their course. But the Lord establishes their steps. Ulysses S. Grant, who was uh, President of the United States, he was a commander of the uh, Union Army in the Civil War. As he wrote his memoirs, he begins with these words. You've heard me quote them before. It's one of my favorite quotes. He says this. He says, Man proposes, but God disposes. Man proposes, but God disposes. Proverbs says, In their hearts, human plans, humans plan their course, but God establishes their steps. Proverbs 19.21 reads this. Many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Many are the plans, right, in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. And so the question is, in planning the course of our lives, are we open to God's itinerary? In the midst of how we're living, what we're doing, are we available for a holy detour? You were created by God, for God. He created you purposely that you might live your life with purpose. You were fearfully and wonderfully made. Do you know that? To accomplish good works that He prepared in advance for you and me to do. I, mean, I think that's part of the key here. I, I think it's the knowledge of that, the belief in that, that, that anchored Paul in these difficult times. That he knew in the midst of everything that these truths would get him through. Not only in Jerusalem, but as he heard the words of Jesus that you'll fulfill. You'll fulfill God's itinerary, God's plan. You're going to make it to Rome. Now there's a third thing. The first, God created us purposely so that we can live purposeful lives. Second, fulfillment is found when we surrender our plans in favor of God's agenda. But third, and this perhaps is the most difficult for us to grasp and understand, living as Christians in the Western world, okay? Are you ready for this one? It's going to make us squirm a little bit. Hmm. God's presence and provision allows us to prosper in impossible situations. God's presence and provisions allows us to prosper in impossible situations. Now that sounds good, doesn't it? Except if God's presence and provision allows us to prosper in impossible situations, that means that to experience that, we're going to have to be put in impossible situations. And what we're seeing here in Acts 23 is Paul is in the midst of an impossible situation. Now, we as Western Christians believe that prosperity comes only when good things come into our life, right? Material blessing or, or other forms of, quote, blessing that enrich our lives, that make us feel good and happy and content, right? 
the worldly things of life. We associate that with prosperity. But do you know that God's prosperity sometimes involves difficulty, hardship, trial, persecution? And that as He calls us to live for Jesus, as we follow Christ into the world, as we fulfill the purpose to which we were created, to be a witness and testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that we are going to be in impossible situations. Difficult situations. There will be hardship. But do you know it's in the midst of that that we, you and me, can prosper. That as our faith is put on display, that as we trust God, as we remain obedient, confident in Him, as Jesus comes to us in the midst of the darkness of life and says, don't worry. I'm here. I'm with you. I will make sure, not in your own strength, but by my power, that you will fulfill the purpose for which I created you. And that when we do that, we literally are prospering the cause of Christ and the gospel in the world. But the challenge is, many of us don't want to go to that place. Many of us want a Christ that's comfortable. We want to take sandpaper to the cross and smooth out the splinters. And yet everyone we've read about here in the Scripture, in the, in the book of Acts, those first followers of Jesus, they were willing to go. They were willing to be a part of the purpose for which they were created, whether it meant what? Experiencing the, quote, prosperity of the world or it meant the prosperity that's found in trusting Christ and remaining resolute in witness in the world when there are difficulties or hardships. Now all we have to do is, is look across the globe to our brothers and sisters in other countries who every day live that reality. Don't tell me that God isn't blessing them. In the midst of their hardship, there is grace. And they're experiencing Christ's presence and power in ways that we who want to remain comfortable will never experience. They are great teachers to us in what it means to follow Christ and His priorities in the world. In Genesis 39-23, it says these words. Speaking of Joseph, remember Joseph? Uh, He was uh, sold into slavery by his brothers. He went into the house of Potiphar and then the house of Pharaoh. All these hard and difficult things happened to him. But you know what it says? And this is, every time something bad happens to him, it says this. In Genesis 39, 23, is, it's just one place in that whole narrative where it says this. It says, the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. And the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Do you realize this is said about Joseph in impossible situations? Do you know that? But it didn't matter. Because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. And I would contend when you and I enter a situation like what the Apostle Paul is in here in Acts chapter 23, an impossible situation, That if the Lord is with us, and if we recognize that, if we live into that ultimate purpose for which He created us, if we're single-minded, if we're obedient, if we surrender our plan to His plan, 
If we say, Lord, if this is as good as it gets, it's good enough for me, as long as I am fulfilling the purpose, the plan, then we could say, as a said of Joseph, the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. And for some of us, that success may be standing firm in the midst of difficulty and hardship and trial and seeing the Lord work mightily. His plan being fulfilled in that difficulty. So the question is, when planning the course of our lives, are we willing to, uh, are we open to God's itinerary? Do we embrace or resist holy detours? In 1904, William Borden, heir to the Borden Dairy Estate, graduated from a Chicago high school, a millionaire. His parents gave him a trip around the world, traveling through Asia, the Middle East, and Europe. And it gave Borden a burden for the world's hurting people. Writing home, he said, I'm going to give my life to prepare for the mission field. When he made this decision, he wrote in the back of his Bible two words, no reserves. Turning down high-paying jobs, offers after graduation from Yale University, he entered two more words in his Bible, no retreats. Completing studies at Princeton Seminary, Borden sailed to China to work with Muslims, stopping first at Egypt for some preparation. While there, he was stricken with cerebral meningitis and died within a month. A waste, you say? Not in God's plan. In his Bible, underneath the words, no reserves, no retreats, he had written two more words, his final entry. No regrets. I believe the key to living a regretless life is living into the plan and the purpose for which God created us. It's trusting Him. It's setting aside our plan for His agenda. It's being able to say, if this is as good as it gets, it's good enough for me. No reserves. No retreat. No regret. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word, for the example of Paul in the midst of difficulty that that he recognized your presence as you came to him. And this morning, Lord, I know that you want to speak into people's lives. I'm here. Don't worry. You will fulfill the purpose for which I created you. Lord, help us today to surrender our plans and be willing to live into your agenda. Lord, to, to take those holy detours as it serves the cause of Christ, to be willing to live wholeheartedly for you in the world. Father, we want to be a healthy missional church and we want to be healthy missional Christians. We want to pursue Christ and his priorities in the world with all of our heart. But Lord, we can't do that without you. And so this morning we ask that you would fill us afresh and anew with your Holy Spirit, that we might live in the power of your Spirit, that we might make a difference in the world for Christ. And as we do that, Lord, we might be resolute, as was William Borden, that the entry in the diary of our lives, we too can say, no reserves, no retreats, no regrets. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.